September 2008, less than a month into Stoke City's maiden Premier League campaign, the bookmakers Paddy Power paid out on bets that the Potters would be relegated that season. Not only did they beat the odds and comfortably avoid the drop, finishing 12th in the end, under the leadership of first Tony Pulis and then Mark Hughes, Stoke established themselves as a, as a top-flight mainstay for a decade until their relegation in 2018, and even earned themselves a place in Europe in 2011 by winning the FA Cup. They weren't just a difficult place to go on a cold and rainy Tuesday night. Their squad was packed full of experience and know-how. Their approach was often physical and uncompromising. They fashioned a huge number of goals and chances from set-piece situations, and often drew ire and frustration from fans and managers of clubs who consider themselves to be more cultured than Stoke. Tonight, we look back on a side who defied the odds time and again, under a manager often maligned for playing an unattractive, unsporting and outdated brand of football, but also a manager who had never been relegated in a career spanning more than a thousand professional games. My name's Joe, and I'm here on four at the back tonight with Neil and Pete. Conspicuous by his absence is an Arsenal fan who bloody hates Stoke City. So Neil, <laughs> we spent most of this <laughs> Neil, we spent most of this season busting some Premier League myths. So we open with this question. Does Tony Pulis get enough credit for the work he did at the Britannia Stadium? I mean, probably not. I mean, Stoke still love him to this day. I think I think, you know, you, you kind of go on any kind of Stoke fan channels of any kind, be it Twitter or you know, forums or, or, or phone-ins or whatever it might be. And, you know, since they've gone down, they, um, they're they constantly harping back to the days of Tony Pulis. And so clearly they didn't think his football was was unattractive or, or, or unfashionable. You know, they, they clearly reveled in the idea of, of uh, you know, of being the spoiler and of, um, of being the team that, that basically roughed up the big boys on a regular basis, you know, which 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 they did. I mean, I've I've got a, a sort of um, slightly different angle on Tony Pulis in the sense that you know I grew up, you know, 20 minutes from Gillingham, which was kind of Pulis's first. I, I, I hesitate to say his first big job, you know, like his first like you know professional job in 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 league football, and and he did a really good job at Gillingham, I remember, um, and that was a notably direct form of football. I mean, I used to go. Gillian fairly often in the the mid 90s and um it, yes it was direct they they definitely played with a target man and um you know and it was 4-4-2 and they got the ball up there quickly um but you know that Stoke side I think were probably a lot more cultured than they get credit for I mean, it's a bit like we covered Allardyce and Bolton you can kind of go into the to the cliches about the you know, the English football manager, like the kind of this sort of Ricky Tomlinson figure um, that kind of eats pies and has a northern accent. But actually, you know, there's a lot more to it than that. So wh- where does the reputation come from then? It, it, obviously, Stoke are a team w- with, a, with a clear identity uh, when they come up. But what what do you remember that of that identity at the time? Did, did you agree that it was... Yeah, it was a bit over the top. It was a bit physical, or did you see that even then there was a bit more to it? I remember when they first came up, and they had a team full of players that had been relegated badly. So we mentioned last time out that there were a few lads who'd been in the derby team that were now playing for Stoke, and more and more there were actually a lot of ex-Sunderland players who'd been relegated 
quite badly that were in this side. And the quote I remember from the time that stood out was they could go down worse than Derby. And no one thought that was going to happen particularly, but it was out there that it was a possibility. And then they played Villa in the second game, having lost away at Bolton, I want to say, ironically. And then uh, so their first home game is against Villa. And that's as close as they've got that year to a derby. I think it's probably fair to say. And they beat us 3-2. And it was a bit of a mixture of the absolutely horrible stuff that they became known for. And that really difficult to defend against physical uh, style. And one of the goals, the winner, comes from a long Rory Delap throw, which is going to come up time and time again over the next half hour or so, I think. But there's also a brilliant goal that they score. The goal of the day from Ricardo Fuller, who was a footballer of real technique and vision. And basically what kind of happened was people noticed the stuff that upset them. They didn't notice the stuff that was happening that was more kind of classy or whatever kind of label you want to apply to it. Now, I always thought that opposition was a little bit forced anyway there's you know these things like throw-ins and playing physical these were all part of the game much more than they are now um but you still have to play them well just because they're not uh, looked on with quite the same light but it did mean that people didn't notice the likes of you know ricardo fuller and, and tunshai were probably the first two in the first couple of years and then they developed more players um who came into the club towards the the end of pulis's run but yeah i remember that game really strongly not only because it kick-started Stoke's eventual kind of survival uh, and and it was a real upset for us who were quite a fancied team at the time but you add it all together and you know there was a real sense of what they offered on both sides of the ball yeah they were, there were lots basically they had almost every player over six foot you know and, it, and they were physically imposing um, and it's quite interesting because you think about like Wenger's Invincibles, like the thing that you hear people like Gary Neville talk about when they talk about how horrible it was to play against them was the fact that, you know, they were all six footers and they were all really physical as well as obviously in, in, in the case of the Invincibles being incredibly skilled. But they were put together in a certain way. But, you know, I suppose that they gathered the reputation that they did because English football had very, very consciously post Zola and you know Cantona and Bergkamp and you know these flair players that came into the league from from other places it, you know it very consciously given itself a makeover and the idea of going back to the crazy gang or any of these sort of the other kind of long ball teams Watford Graham Taylor's Watford is another you know, it's another really great example it seems like it was getting in a time machine and going back to when English football was, was, was less fashionable. And it's almost as if like self-consciously the league didn't want that as part of its identity. And I think, you know, we've seen a similar thing with Burnley more recently, that a very self-consciously English style of play gets quite derided because of course, for the past 25 years, it's been a, a process of becoming more inverted commas continental to the point where now the Premier League looks less like English football as you might imagine English football than say the Bundesliga does so I think that's that's probably quite a big part of it is simply how the league now saw itself and how much of a throwback they seem to be didn't mean that it wasn't effective and partially it was effective because it was different 
and teams weren't prepared to deal with it. I mean, that example of kind of late period Wenger Arsenal getting roughed up by Pulis and Stoke every year and Wenger saying that long throwing should be banned by FIFA. Like, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> living rent-free in Arsene Wenger's head. Like, it's it was fantastic stuff, really, when you think about it. Well, he wants to ban heading now, doesn't he? So... He basically wants. He basically wants football. I mean, if you look, listen to Wenger these to days. Ban Stoke. He, he just wants to ban. Yeah, he just wants. He just wants to ban sort of like anything that makes it not futsal, doesn't he? Yeah, pretty I mean, much. You could sort of understand it. I mean, the, before we we started recording, I watched a four and a half minute compilation of every single goal in the Premier League era um, that came as a result of Rory Delap's throw-ins, and uh, there were two in the home game against Arsenal. They won 2-1. And the winner um, is scored by Olofinjana. And he basically chests it, falls over, and chests it again into the back of the net. It's one of the worst goals I've ever seen in my life. But the point was that no one knew how to defend it. Well, the point is that no one knows how to defend. You have to deal with it. And as Arsenal moved to a more technical defensive style and passing and around the back they neglected the first duty of defenders which is to defend and mm. that was a threat that everybody had to deal with and and they didn't um so i have very little sympathy on the one hand i also think something about you know seeing rory delap throw that ball in was as attractive in its own way as watching a lot of other moves that get much more lauded yes some of the mayhem in the box wasn't particularly pretty but the act of like delivering that and doing that well is as aesthetically interesting as any other aspect of football. So I've always been I've always been inclined to push back against a lot of these things and think that generally what really kind of sits behind it is just sour grapes. Yeah, you know, they they lost. That was that was it. You know, you don't uh, we lost, but in uh, to Rory's lap throwing in that first game, we had a habit of losing to late Stoke goals during the first couple of years of Pulis's run. Um, but I just sort of yeah, got over it. a couple it. of them. Yeah, well, yeah. Saw a couple of them. Robert Hoof, I think, was another one. I mean, ultimately, like, it, you know, sort of, it kind of goes back to percentage football, you know, this idea of getting in the, the, the zone of maximum opportunity, you know, that there was, you know, sort of, it's most efficient to get down the field in three passes or, or you know three passes or less right <laughs> was the kind of the theory behind all of this and it 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 sort of made a lot of sense in the era with these really heavy balls and actually most teams had you know a powerful center forward that that, that could win the ball in the air and you know and box to box midfielders that were running in to to kind of feed off scraps and it made a lot of sense in that context it's quite interesting to kind of take that kind of set piece related football and transplant it into the middle of the 2000s. Like, I think that's that's why it, it kind of looks so alien. But even if you look at last season, as uh, you know, last season as a time of recording this, you know, Brentford beat Arsenal on the first day of last season, basically by being really good at set pieces and by keeping it tight defensively. Now, Brentford are a really technical team but they know how to use set pieces because for a team that has lesser resources, set pieces are an equaliser. And and it's always been that way. Like if you know how to use set pieces properly, then, you know, you stand a better chance of scoring 
um, even when the opposition has better players than you. I mean, it's a Southampton. It's Southampton all over, isn't it? I mean, between Matt Letizia and James Ward-Prowse, they've they've always given themselves a chance by having someone who can who is lethal from from twenty five yards. So it and it's a tactic in itself. It's within the laws of the game. There's nothing wrong with playing within the laws of the game and and trying to play to your strengths. And I think what Pulis, you know, it, it, it's an obvious tactic, isn't it? You you build your squad not just by getting players who are technically proficient. You want big guys who are going to put themselves about and upset you know, and it's not going to work every time they don't have the budget to bring in the very best players but they can certainly be selective with who they bring in and um, and and play in a certain way and they, they always have the right to do that um the other thing that Pulis did I mean, there's a couple of things that he did which kind of all sort of feed into this um this approach of you know basically basing your the majority of your attacking play around earning set-piece opportunities and, and making the most of them. Um, they made the dimensions of the pitch as small as they possibly could um, to take advantage of, of Delap's long throw ability. They were drilled with an inch of their lives in, in set-pieces. Um, I think he had a set-piece coach and was one of the first uh, Premier League managers to have a, have a dedicated set-piece coach. And obviously Liverpool now have a, have a throw-in to coach, don't they? Who specifically coaches on throw-ins? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, like Conte's got a set piece as coach at Spurs. Like, you know, it's 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 not it's not just mid-table teams that are doing this. It's it's so, it's, it's it's kind of everybody now. So was Pulis a dinosaur or ahead of his time? Where's the Sam Allardyce conversation we had? Uh, yeah. Previously, right? Mm. The, the, you know, you know, you know, in a way, you can be both because what Pulis and Allardyce and Sean Dyche have done is they have taken successful elements of English football in the early 80s through early 90s and and they've given it a modern spin and they've used analytics and data as as part of what they did as well as having a really a really smart eye for a player. I think that's the really important thing about all of those managers was that those squads were actually put together on not very much money and, you know, put together to be effective in that style of football. And that's actually really skillful because, I mean, actually this leads into what we spoke about with Derby last week, that Derby didn't have an identity, didn't think about who they were signing, didn't spend money when they came up, then panic spent money on a load of washed has-beens in the January transfer window. So there's an awful lot of skill to what Pulis and Allardyce and Sean Dyche did. And it's sort of, I guess, only not recognised because, you know, the big clubs are so, so snooty nowadays that the only way that they can kind of you know massage their wounded egos when they lose to a team like Stoke is by saying oh you know they played Brexit ball or you know whatever insult of the day you might want to use. Yeah I think if you go back to what you were saying a little while ago about the uh, not wanting to go back I think that's a really big part of it because there was a narrative that went around in those first few years of the Premier League particularly when Graham Taylor became England manager and the first season of the Premier League was struggling for the um, for, for its identity as a league, if you like. And, and you know, what, what what kind of spectator sport is this? You know, and there's a real snootiness in some of the 
uh, some of the press about this style of football that a lot of these teams are playing. And an argument comes out that even then, the teams that play too much long ball football are bad for football itself because their players don't get enough experience of playing with the ball at their feet. So they can only play one way. And that's why teams like Germany, it was said, will always end up winning because they're just going to have more technical sophistication. I think what teams like Stoke end up doing is throwing that back in people's face because, yes, they do have the long ball. They do have um, a directness that hasn't really been there. Other, it, they are even like more at it than, than Bolton. They're kind of like Bolton on speed. Um, but they also do have, you know, as I say, you know, mentioned already, like Fuller is a not just a battering ram up front. Yes, they've got Sadibi there as well. And they have a, a string of centre forwards that are quite effective battering rams. And a lot of players who are six foot tall. But, you know, Fuller's a, re- a really good forward. Tunchai is a really good forward. In the season that we're about to look at in more detail, they're going to have a period where they've got uh, Etherington and Pennant uh, on either wing. And they're going to start whipping and crosses. So all of a sudden, they go from being just a fairly simple team with well-drilled set pieces that don't concede a lot and make life difficult. All of a sudden, they're actually able to play some quite interesting football as well that goes along with it. So, yeah, they throw it back by being able to combine the two in a way that blows up narratives that have been there for, at this point, 20 years. Absolutely. And, you know, like the, you know, the sort of the season afterwards, um, you know, they make a real statement. They sign Peter Crouch, you know, who was an England international and had, you know, just come off a, you know, a couple of successful spells at Liverpool and Spurs. So, and Peter Crouch, remember, actually wasn't, ironically, wasn't that good in the air. You know, he was a much, much more technical player <laughs> than, than he was. He might have been like six or seven, but he wasn't really a target man in, in that sense. He was, he was actually sort of quite good with the ball at his feet. So it, it was, you know, it was one of those things where I think where, again, both, yeah, like we said, both things can be true. They, Certainly were direct, but they were not one dimensional. I think probably that that that's the important thing to remember. And um, and ultimately, as we talked about last week, when you are that kind of club, you want to establish yourself, first of all. And then you can start thinking about identities and whatever else. And the interesting thing with Stoke, of course, is that after Mark Hughes comes on board, after Tony Pierce has left, you know, you get the Stoke Alona project um, where actually they diversify their, you know, their squads and they do go to, they go on and play some incredibly attractive football. So you have to, but you have to have the base first. And Brighton did the same thing. You know, Bryce under Chris Hewton were all about staying in the league. And then you have a base to go and get a Graham Potter and play some nice football. So that's the key thing. What Derby didn't have, as we spoke about last time, was any capability to stay in the league whatsoever. Stoke had a plan to stay in the league and to consolidate. Um, and Pierce did that absolutely brilliantly. I think should, what I, so just I, to finish on that as well, we should add that one difference between Derby and Stoke is that Stoke have been out of the division for so long at this point and they are, until they've been in the league for a year or so, quite under-resourced. Uh, Derby have the the bad issue of being expected to come up and maybe fight. So there's like, okay, well, what's going on? And then there's the stuff back in the background. Stoke are not expected to do anything. They are kind of seen as a bit of a Barnsley type team that are punched above their weight. They haven't been here since the early 80s. 
and they have that sense of identity and everybody pulling in the same direction from the off. So low expectations and a coherent plan behind the scenes all add up to some really good things as well. I think one of the things we've learned from uh, from doing these shows, maybe it was, it was pretty obvious, really, but you can't be one dimensional to survive in the Premier League. Like you, if you've got a game plan that works, it maybe works for a year, maybe a year and a half at best, and then you've got to evolve. So they, they couldn't have just played the same way for seven years and not and not evolved at all. We talked a few weeks ago about Blackburn, who won the league by playing a certain way one year. And when they tried to do the same thing the following year, it, it, it wasn't as effective because the rest of the teams had adapted. So, you know, this this first season where they, they, they pick up they pick up a quarter of their goals from Rory Delap throw-ins. Um, and then it dries up for the next couple of years. They've got to find other ways of doing it. So using wide players and using a slightly different approach in attack um, was bound to work. And the makeup of the side was still generally the same. Like the DNA is still the same. They're still physical. They're still uncompromising. They've still got plenty of experience and, and know-how. But you do have to find new tactical approaches. Otherwise, you sink. And we've seen it so many times. Like we, we, you know, Sheffield United uh, happened to. I know they got unlucky with injuries, but they couldn't adapt. And you're, teams who can't adapt will eventually sink. You are right, though. Like four four two doesn't necessarily mean one dimensional, right? So what Neil's just saying, what you're just saying, there, I think it all comes back together. If you have one way of playing, you'd be lucky to step one season, let alone two. Four four two, even moving the ball quite directly, can be can mean many different things. Sam Allardyce's Bolton were direct. I never really thought of them as a long ball team. You know, those cross field balls into particular areas was a tactic and one that was quite hard to deal with. It's not just lumping it up to the forward. Uh, the Wimbledon team that we spoke about last year, they had spells where they had some really creative players and they didn't just lump it up to the forward. There was, There's more to it. And it, again, it just goes back to that sense of it gets derided, partly because people don't understand it, but also because people don't, don't want to understand it. You know, it, it doesn't fit a nice little image that they have of pretty passive football where everything looks like the Carlos Alberto goal from 1970. And arguably not wanting to understand it is actually playing into their hands. Because if, oh, you're, not sure. if you're not acknowledging it as a as a legitimate approach, like Arsene Wenger did, wouldn't. And funnily enough, it was often Arsenal who would trip up at, uh, at Stoke, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's I think why Maz took against them so so strongly was because it was the the what proverbial cold Wednesday. Can you do it on a Wednesday night in Stoke, uh, which has just become the ultimate footballing cliche of the last twenty or so years? I mean, that was almost made for Arsenal. You know, good on a Saturday, three o'clock at home. You know, hardly ever lost under those kind of conditions. Tricky away game, uh, playing against someone who made life uncomfortable for you. It's a different, different kettle of fish. And uh, I think football's a little bit less entertaining for teams like that not being around. Also, the Britannia was a incredibly hostile environment to go to. You know, fairly small stadium, um, loads of noise. You know, it's one of those stadiums that it seems really close to the pitch. It's got that that proper febrile atmosphere and you know like you know sort of Leicester when the King Power is jumping feels you know feels similar 
when you go to those grounds, it is a massive home advantage. You know, when you have a crowd that's like that, when you have a stadium that's like that, it does almost feel gladiatorial in a way, you know. Mm, yeah, and they were fervently behind Pulis at Stoke for the first three, four years in the Premier League. There was a little bit of a fatigue towards the very, very end. Uh, as you say, maybe something that they slightly regret in hindsight. But for those first few years, when they didn't really expect to survive and they were just grateful to be there and, you know, owed Pulis a lot. Just the idea of like being the 12th man, being behind that team. Uh, yeah, it was bloody horrible. So, I mean, really we should we should talk about this season in a little bit more detail because we we do try and sort of focus on uh, on one particular season. And I think this is quite an interesting story from start to finish. But the the one we were going to look at was the uh, the season, the 2010-2011 season, where they they actually went they deep in the FA Cup. I shaky on the facts, right? Yeah, so I, I did hear that. Yeah, <laughs> and, I, and I and I said that, and I, I was like, was that right? No. Nope. So they didn't win. They didn't win the FA Cup. They won the FA Cup semi-final. Yeah. And then they, they qualified to... for Europe because, because qualified City were already Europe. qualified. Yeah, City were Aguero'd at that point, weren't they? Which yes. means, of course, that this is the final where City win the first trophy that actually goes on to kickstart the wave of the next you know, decade. It's the FA Cup before they then go on to win the league. Right, we don't need to talk about that oil club, do we? No, quite, quite. <laughs> Although the Yara Torre goal in that final was something else, if I recall. So we, we've talked about the very last moment in this season. Um, so we've, we've skipped right to the end. Um, so this season, I mean, I'm looking through. I mean, none of, none of Stoke seasons, with the exception of the first sort of Hughes season, and they always seem to sort of manage to end up in, in the mid 40s. So they they finished 13th this season. So they start off the season in awful form. Like they lose the first three. I think Stoke were one of those teams around this time where everyone thought they've got a good chance of going down this year. Yeah. Um, and I think this this season is generally personified by really iffy runs of form, followed by really strong runs of form. Um, they start off really badly, uh, then they go they go four unbeaten, including wins at home to Villa, um, away at Newcastle, obviously, and um, a home win at Blackburn. Then they lose four on the bounce, Bolton. Man United, Everton, Sunderland, and then they win three on the bounce, including a 2-0 home win against Liverpool. So, could anyone sort of put any rhyme or reason as to what this inconsistency was all about? Uh, yeah, if you're playing quite direct, then all it actually takes is for the other side to defend quite well and you're giving the ball away a lot. Uh, that's one of the main reasons why a lot of teams have moved away from that statistically is is that very reason you're surrendering possession. So you're always going to be liable to stuff on the other side of the ball. But what I think is more notable and why they never got into a losing spell for too long is that, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but other than a handful of bad days, generally it's losing by the odd goal. You know, they're either losing 1-0 or 2-1. Not a tremendous amount of of other results where they absolutely get kind of played off the park. There may be some exceptions no, to that. There's no hammerings 
Um, I mean, the, the first hammering they get, ironically, is to West Ham, mm. um, which is in March, and they lose again 3-0 to City um, at the Etihad in May. But apart from that, it's yeah, you're right, it's by the odd goal. There's a couple of 2-0 defeats, but nothing you know, disastrous. I remember two things. One is that they were much more likely to win by two or three goals than to lose because they dealt with other teams better than other teams dealt with them. Uh, and then the other thing was that they were notoriously slow starters, as I recall. So yeah, it's not a, of, not a surprise a to see them lose three on the bounce. A lot of their goals are second half or, or, or late in the game, aren't they? Uh, they don't, in fact, looking at it, they score... They don't score a goal in the first half. Apart from the the, the the defeat at Tottenham, they score one goal in the first half before December. I think Which that's a, the... That's a mental stat, that is. I think that's the game where Gareth Bale scores the absolute worldie. Where he like, it's like a sort of volley where he sort of uh, almost volleys it off his own shoulder, like sort of straight into the opposite top corner. Yeah, it was that one. Um, that was an unreal goal. That was like Gareth was really starting to cook at that point. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a difficult start, that isn't it? I mean, you think about it. I think were Wolves a fellow promoted team. I think they must have been. Be around that time, wouldn't it? Uh, and then Spurs and Chelsea back to back. That's a tough. That's a tough start, you know. And then um, yeah, then they kind of yeah they beat they beat Villa like very late on. Kelsey um, Priest. Robert Robert. <laughs> Robert, Ho- Robert Hoot's a really interesting player to me because he was like, you know, almost on the Chelsea bench for what seemed like forever, really. Like he was sort of, you know, young kid they brought over from Germany was known to be like a, you know, a really promising player. And he just couldn't obviously displace, you know, Terry Carvalho, you know, all these centre backs that Chelsea had. And so, you know, he ends up going to Stoke. And then, of course, he ends up winning a league with Leicester, <laughs> you know, a few years after this. Like, he's such, a, such an interesting player. But he was a proper old school goal scoring centre half. Like, he was always good for a goal from a corner or something, wasn't he, Robert Heath? Yeah, didn't he go Middlesbrough in between the two? I seem to remember there being a bit of an ill advised spell there. Well travelled, I think, was the cliche you used to use about players like that. You know? <laughs> yeah, um, but it's another one of these types of player where Stoke were one of those teams, and this is why they had the tag of oh, they're going to be in trouble almost every year, where they would raid the sides that had been relegated. And Hoof had probably gone down with that Middlesbrough team when their spell in the in the top flight ran out of steam, and they went down with a bit of a whimper. Well, I mean, Rory Delap obviously come from Southampton, who has you know, famously finally gone down in, what, 2006? Um, yeah. at, having, obviously, Southampton having been in the top division for years and years before that, and then it, mm. it took took him a little while to get back. So, and then he'd been relegated with Sunderland the year afterwards. So, yeah, I mean, he was kind of missed the relegation for a little bit there. Mm, quite. I'm just thinking that some of the, the names that they do bring in, Huth is one that obviously works out really well, but there's a few others around this kind of time. Uh, the, the decision to sign Begovic is obviously another one that paid off handsomely because a lot of this, so much of this is, is based on defensive solidity. So the fact you've got these monsters at the back who are all massive, but all really capable as well. Huth is obviously playing 
on until to win the league with Leicester some years later and Begovic is still on the books at Everton isn't he yeah unbelievable so. he must I mean, I, every time I see that he's Everton's backup keeper I'm like he must be like 103 he's only like 35 years old so he like he seems to have played forever yeah there's that long long spell at Portsmouth before he does move to Stoke where he's loaned out pretty much every year I think it must have been David James that he couldn't get past yeah and uh, yeah, this is where he finally gets a chance to be a starter, and clearly grabs grabs it with both hands. Absolutely, I mean, he was a he was a really, really, really good keeper, and um, it's quite it's quite interesting, like because obviously he's he's you know he's kind of Canadian with Bosnian parents, isn't he? And so he he represents Bosnia in international football, and then you see an interview with him, and he's got an American sort of you know North American accent. <laughs> like, oh, hang on a minute, you know, it's a very Bosnian to me. Um, yeah, but but really intelligent player, always came across really, really well. Um, great shot stopper. I remember him for Stoke having numerous seasons. I think maybe one of the Stoke owner seasons, actually. I remember him being absolutely brilliant. One-on-one and shot stopping. He was among the best in the league for, you know, for several seasons there. Also, got booked three times this season. I imagine that was um, time wasting. Yeah, time, time wasting. Yeah, yeah. Time <laughs> almost <laughs> certainly, you know. That's yeah. like, you know, like, uh, you know, sort of. It's almost like Jordan Pickford has learned from the master. Because I mean, like, if you've watched any Everton games this season, like, you know, Pickford is is often being booked after 20 minutes for time wasting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like 20 minutes gone, and he's like I mean, sort of lying on the ball in his own six yard box. It's either that or, or just yelling some obscenity at the ref. He's it's, it's, it's a mouthy little gear, isn't he? Um, <laughs> anyway, um, the, I, I've just had a look at the transfers in this season and um, one of the ones that didn't work out, um, Idega Johnson. I mean, how Again. old was Good Johnson yeah. then? He must have been, he must have been getting <laughs> on a bit. Oh, he was he, th- 32 he, he was at oh, the time. Oh, OK. Yeah, because he, he must have come... When did he leave Barcelona? 2009, he went to Monaco. So he would have only been a, a year at Monaco then. And then he did Spurs the previous, yeah. previous season, and he, then he, he went to Fulham. Yeah, uh, he made a few appearances for us. Season. Um, he was still at Bolton. He came back to Bolton in 2014. Yeah, um, coming full circle. Wasn't he still playing for Iceland until he was like 40? <laughs> I mean, he was still playing. He retired in 2017. He's 44 now. I'm pretty sure he'd be 39, well, wouldn't he? Well, because he he played, so he played for Iceland while his dad was still playing for Iceland. I won't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> so him oh, and his puts, dad lined uh, up, yeah, lined yeah, up was, in the same team. It puts Gary Kelly and Ian Hart in a different light, doesn't it? I mean, <laughs> I mean he was he was 17 when he he made his debut for Iceland. His dad was 34. That's that's a great start, isn't it? Yeah, playing play I'd say the best bit of business they did that summer. It, it doesn't look like it on paper, and it would have kind of fallen between the, the cracks of some of the other deals. Like Pennant probably would have got more of the attention. Good Johnson would have got more of the attention. But Jonathan Waters for under three million from Ipswich, and he goes on to play hundreds and hundreds of games for them over the rest of that decade, pretty much. Uh, he was not someone I ever particularly liked watching Waters, but for an effective player with a you know serious kind of goal threat, he was a tidy bit of business at that money. I mean, 
225 games. He scored 43, 43 goals for them um, mm. in the league. So it was yeah. vitally effective. Mm. And really important goals as well. From the wing, that's the important thing. You know, when he was often pushed forward, so he was out on the as a wide man rather than being a centre forward, particularly a lot of the time. Uh, so he's not 200 plus games right in the heart of the action. He's uh, he's pushed out to the side and, and still managed to provide a goal threat. Yeah, he was one of those players that, you know, I mean, Stoke had a lot of these these players over the years. Like they didn't have to score 20 a season because really they had lots of players that chipped in seven or eight. And they kind of got by that way. Um, whereas, you know, some of the other teams that you might say, you know, like Sunderland when they had Kevin Phillips, you know, he was going to bang in 30 goals and they were doing reasonably well because Kevin Phillips was scoring 30 goals. Whereas, you know, teams like Stoke and Bolton, they spread the goals about the team. Um, you'd get quite a few goals from midfield with sides like that. You know, again, I guess because of the set piece throughout, you'd have centre-halves that scored a fair amount of goals for you. Um, so, you know, they didn't need their forwards to be racking up Harlan numbers. They just needed them to be kind of creating space for others in a lot of ways. You know, they were tying defenders down. They were running into channels. Jonathan Waters was great at running the channels. Like you say, he he just kind of um, made things awkward and it opens up space for other people then. Mm. Sure, it's like uh, you don't need it to be as vulnerable, say, as like Ipswich Town were in the, the George Burley era, where if Marcus Stewart scores 20 goals, they come fifth. And if no one scores 20 goals, they get relegated. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean you see this in basketball, or you used to see this in basketball a lot. Uh, you know, this idea of, of you know, you don't need to be like a big sort of, you know, someone that contributes loads of points uh, if, you know, you're tying up the opposition defence and, and uh, you know, allowing your scorers to to play, basically. Um, so you can think of those kind of target men as being a bit like that sometimes. I mean, Emil Heskey, at a higher level, you know, that's what he was for England. And, and the reason, you know, sort of the reason why people that understood what Sven was doing never minded him picking Emil Heskey is because they knew that it got the best out of Michael Owen. Because what Heskey did was essential to how Michael Owen played. So, the uh, the, the Stoke side sort of they, they secure survival um, probably sort of around sort of April time. Uh, they lose their final two games, but uh, by this point they've put themselves a place in the FA Cup final, um, having probably the toughest game in that run was West Ham in the quarter final, who they they beat two one. Uh, the run otherwise consisted of Cardiff City, uh, who they beat after a replay. Uh, they beat Wolves in the fourth round at Molyneux. Um, they beat Brighton at home uh, in the fifth. Uh, they met Bolton Wanderers in the semi-final and absolutely annihilated them 5-0 um, before coming up against Man City and, uh, and succumbing to that Yaya Torre goal. This was probably the high point of the Pulis uh, of the Pulis era at Stoke. So where does it where does it start to 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 fall apart? I don't know if it's as dramatic as it as it falls apart as much as it just you know it, it sort of I guess it just has a 
I mean, what's the the phrase that you used earlier on, Pete? That that essentially there was a weariness about it, um, you know, towards the end, and maybe a desire amongst the fan base for them to play a more expansive game. I think I think probably that's it more than anything else because they couldn't argue with the results. When does Hughes take over? Like thirteen? Yeah, twenty thirteen, fourteen, and they immediately do jump up a little bit but uh it's a little bit like when david moyes leaves everton right and they still have the the residuals of the david moyes structure in place for a while but the new coach's ideas on top of that and so they're able to combine the best of both worlds and think for a while hughes is able to integrate some of that long-standing stuff that's been drilled over time but by in- introducing some new players like steven and zonzi and so on add a little bit more Again, it's it's like a kind of football and gravity thing. Once that the other stuff starts to wear off, and I think investment starts to dry up after a few years, um, that project was only going to end one way once Tony Pulis left. I mean, yeah, that that sort of it was it fourteen fifteen when they finished. I think they finished ninth, and um, you know, had that great team with Arnautovic and Boyan and it was Arnautovic Boyan. Crouch is still there at that point. Is he still there? And, and but it was just that sort of they had that sort of four man sort of attacking. They were playing a four two three one. They had the three creative sort of you know attackers behind you know behind Shikiri. the striker Shakiri. That was it. Yes, Shakiri, Afalai. That's the one. Yeah, and, Charlie and, Adams was a big part of that team as well by that point Charlie Adam I should say yeah. um, he uh, obviously has, has recovered from his Liverpool experience by that point and become a, a fairly unpleasant but important cog in the midfield and I, I just remember that um, I remember doing really well in, in fancy football that year because I got on the Arnautovic uh, train early and he just had this absolutely barnstorming season and um, and they were playing just some super super football but but again, it's it's that danger thing, isn't it? It's like, yeah, you can, uh, as you say, defy football in gravity and, you know, and, and sort of like make your style more expansive. But you risk losing the solidity when you do that. And it was only a couple of years later, what was it, 17, 18, when they, they, finally, they finally get relegated. And of course, they still haven't made it back up. And with the parachute payments, I mean, they're well and truly run out for them now, aren't they? So, you know, it, it's it's increasingly difficult for Stoke to make their way back up there, although they poached Sunderland's manager, didn't they? So uh, hmm. they, they they retain, I guess they retain the, the kind of residual big clubness, if you like, of having been in the Premier League for a good, was it seven years in the end? It was a decade they were in there. Mm. I mean, yeah. So, so they retain that recent Premier League club status that means that they can poach somebody else's manager, for example. And they've got some good players. I mean, you know, but, but there's no reason to suggest that they couldn't make a charge in the Championship this season and get back up. And then it'd be interesting to see what approach they take. The other thing to add, if we're talking about how it all starts to wind down in the Pulis era and moving into to Hughes was a lot of that team starts to age out. That's that's the reality. So not only are 
fans may be getting a bit tired with seeing that style of football, but several of the more iconic players are retiring or moving on in some other way. So you see a lot of them leaving on freeze. Uh, Ricardo Fuller leaves not long before Pulis uh, quits Salaf Diaw. Um, Rory Delap starts to get loaned out in the lower leagues. You, you see after the season where they're in Europe over the next year or so, a lot of the cult figures who are not superstars, and if I name them, it's not going to mean anything to 99% of people who aren't Stoke City fans, but they were really important to the Stoke fan base's identification with that team. Uh, and that's something that we'll see quite often with uh, with a lot of these iconic teams, is once you start to change the parts, it's a little bit like the uh, you know Trigger's Broom thing on Only Fools and Horses. You, know, you can say it's the same team, but if you've changed the head and you've changed the handle that many times, is it really? Um, yeah, so I think once you start to see a, a very different 11, the relationship between the the fans and Pulis in particular and and his side starts to to shift and um and yeah this I guess it's you know success of any kind spoils any fans after long enough and uh, maybe some of them started to feel a bit put out at being put down by everybody else in the Premier League and not actually seeing started to not see the wood for the trees uh that it was just you know again go back to the beginning sour grapes that was motivating a lot in that in the first place yeah, I mean, ultimately, like, you know, snobbishness is, I think, probably the the unfortunate side effect of what the Premier League, you know, has become. As soon as you start believing your own hype and, you know, this is the league where the best football is played. But you think about, like, you know, Mourinho's teams, you know, yeah, the, the, that first season when they opened it up with 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 Duff and, and Cole and Robin and, and, and stuff, they were playing some really really towards the end of that season some really scintillating stuff but the first half of that season they were just keeping it tight at the back <laughs> um, and certainly subsequent Mourinho seasons were kind of just brutally effective if you think about the Benitez teams they were they were built from the back there were lots of long Stevie Gerrard passes up to up to Torres so it's it's not as if you know, we live in this sort of Pep Guardiola fantasy land where everybody is playing, you know, two-touch football. There's always been room for direct football. I mean, you, you could you could look at, I mean, you could look actually, I mean, like you think about, about Conte actually at, at Spurs right now, you know, um, it's keep it tight at the back and, and you've got a front three that can compete with anybody else and score your goal at any time. So partially the Premier League's own propaganda sometimes makes it very tough on teams like Stoke to get the respect they probably deserve. And it also shows up the way that, you know, different teams have different resource capabilities and have to use their resources cleverly. You know, teams like Stoke arguably has a bit of a money ball approach before teams like Brentford made it fashionable. So yeah, it's, it's just a different, it's a different way to win, but mm. they can't win the same way as the big clubs win because they don't have the same resources. Yeah. All that money. I was just going to say, cause you mentioned the money ball is all the money ball thing is really is finding players that are for whatever 
biases that we might have are undervalued. And, you know, if you if everybody else forgets that it's actually quite useful to be six foot three and, you know, have be good in the air. Well, someone's going to take advantage of that. I'll, t- I'll, t- I'll tell you I've, as, a, as a final thought on on this for me, the, the, the natural successes to, to Stoke in the Premier League at the moment. Newcastle United, mm. because we've we, we basically put together a squad of very physical players. I mean, that, that back line is, apart from Trippier, is one of the tallest in the league. Um, Joe Linton and Bruno Guimaraes are, are, are as physical as they are cultured. Callum Wilson's probably one of the best poachers in the league. And we've got no problem with being hated. Absolutely no problem with it at all. And actually having having talked at length about sort of Stoke and their approach, I can see a lot of what they did being applied by Eddie Howe, albeit at a, perhaps an even higher level than um, than Tony Tony Fulis took it to. Um, so perhaps Newcastle are the natural successors to Stoke, which I quite like in a way. I mean, there is an argument that the rapid transitions of the modern game are actually just an evolution of position of maximum opportunity, you know, moving the ball as quickly as you can. The difference, I suppose, is rather than playing it long and looking to win a flick on or moving it that way, is that these teams are, tend to be looking to draw on the opposition to create space behind and playing it more on the floor. But the, the principle of like reducing the number of passes, that the odds of a mistake go up with every pass you make, so move it as fast as you can. That's not really all that different. It's just a more patient evolution of the same tactics. So, yeah, Newcastle, uh, obviously, a candidate for that. You mentioned Conte. Uh, Villa have just hired a manager in Unai Emery, famous for working on the transition. Uh, Mourinho did it. I mean, in a sense, it's not all that different. No, this is what I'm saying is, 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 is exactly that, that you're just... Teams have always you know, try to find the most efficient way to win. And even if you look at something like Guardiola, like the way that Cruyff and Guardiola see football is 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 based on spaces and, and understanding of spacing. Uh, and, and again, that's just a different version of footballing efficiency. Um, you know, it might be more aesthetically pleasing, but it's still based on effectiveness. I think that's what people forget. I, I guess, you know, the real kind of, you know, sort of um, individualism and kind of just go with the flow, tactical, naive, that kind of stuff. That that died with Brazil in 1982, you know, and, and you've not really seen it since. And I think sometimes people imagine that that's how the top teams, you know, that the top teams play like Brazil in 1982, but they don't, <laughs> you know, like there's always been a level of pragmatism to it. No, I think what well, you see a lot of older football fans lamenting that on a on a regular basis, that the game doesn't have that aspect, but it hasn't had it for such a long time. It's just the, the levels of tactical drilling and, you know, I don't know how else to describe it, but that kind of robotic kind of uh, thing that we've mentioned that the likes of Messi and Ronaldo have been able to drill up over the years, that's maybe increased, but it's been a progression of, what, 40 years now? Yeah, I'll tell I mean, you what will upset 
I'll tell you what will upset Maz more than anything is that discovering that this uh, this discussion on Stoke City has ended with a reference to the Brazil 1982 side. So, uh... <laughs> we sh- we, there's one thing that we do have to uh, quickly fit in just before we don't have to spend much time on it. So there was one uh, and only one, despite them being a pretty consistent team. There was only one England cap during the Pulis years at Stoke. Uh, it was Ryan Shawcross. He was the only man capped, but for England <laughs> during the whole uh, the whole time there. Uh, dur- during the Hughes era, I think they started to cap Jack Butland as like the third choice goalkeeper, but that barely counts. Uh, so yeah, Shawcross made it to the uh, to the England team from Stoke when when no one else did. He got absolutely mugged off by Ibrahimovic and never played again. Like that was the Ibrahimovic like. 10 minute hat trick <laughs> like, that'll, it was, that'll destroy your career like it, yeah. it was like and, and literally I think Shawcross was basically like completely mugged off by Ibrahimovic for all three of those oh, I, think, I think that'll cheer Maz right up <laughs> <laughs> right um, so uh, thank you gentlemen for uh, what has been a, a very interesting discussion on uh, one of the uh, one of the unsung heroes of the, the Premier League era. Um, we're taking a break now. Uh, it might think you you might think that we're always taking breaks, but this one, you know, there's just a small matter of a World Cup coming up, so um, we're going to take a break and, um, and, and absorb the World Cup. So we'll be back in the new year with the second half of uh, season four with four at the back. Uh, we've got some uh, a bit of European flair coming up for you in the second half. Um, we're going uh, we're going over to Holland for a little bit, and um, and then I think we've got a, a couple of interesting sides to to round off the season as well. So we look forward to seeing you then. Uh, enjoy the World Cup, um, and just remember, it's coming home. <laughs>